Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast on alanarnett.com. This is Alan. It's Friday, May 14th, 2021, and we're discussing Everest 2021. Hey, today I want to go through uh, two or three different so subjects, um, and one that's really sensitive, talking about deaths on Everest. But first off, uh, right now it's pretty quiet on the mountain. The jet stream has uh, moved from the south back over the summit on its way north into China. And so uh, it looks like that we're in for a few days of heavy winds on the summit. Uh, anytime it's over 30 miles an hour, most guides will not take their clients up. Most individuals won't climb. Maybe they'll take it to 35 miles an hour or so. We may see some people you know, starting to head up uh, on the fringes uh, when the winds move off as it's forecasted to do. Hopefully the forecast is going to be accurate, but uh, everybody knows how weather forecasting goes. So, um, but uh, if they do leave, uh, they're looking to summit sometime around between the 19th and the 23rd. So actually ne next week, the middle of next week is when all the action is really going to pick up and we're going to start to see roughly 350 people that are still at base camp. That includes the Sherpas uh, that will be making their attempt over. Hopefully, hopefully it's going to be a five, six day window and that'll allow people to spread out and we won't have anything related to what we saw in 2019. You know, let's, let's really hope that's the, that's the case. Uh, but over on China, the Chinese have uh, actually stopped the only expedition that they had on that side. They cited uh, the fear of their climbers uh, getting COVID. Uh, and so we had talked about uh, Chinese putting up a wall or a barrier or a line in the snow. I don't know what they were thinking they were going to put up there, but they were really worried that uh, their Chinese nationals were going to get COVID from anybody climbing from the Nepal side. And so they were going to put up some type of barrier to prevent people or to ask people not to cross that line and intermingle. You know, personally, I was thinking that if I'm up there on Everest on the summit in a full down suit, 8,000 meter boots, wearing an oxygen mask, ask, uh, you know, the chances of me breathing or getting anybody else's breath in a 30 mile an hour wind was really low. But, um, you know, the Chinese made their decision. So that is off the table now in terms of being a uh, potential problem. You know, the other mountains, I think the, on Makalu and Dalagari, Dalagiri, that is uh, pretty much over at this point. Uh, Carlos uh, Soria is still at uh, Dalagiri base camp. Uh, maybe there's a few other people there too. Um, mainly, I think what they're doing is just waiting for uh, the ban to be listed, lifted on international flights so that they can get to Kathmandu and get out and minimize how much time they actually spend um, on that side of the mountain or on uh, back in Kathmandu, uh, given that that's really the epicenter of what's going on with the pandemic right now uh, throughout Nepal. So um, let's talk about the deaths on Everest. Uh, sadly, there were two people who died. I've covered that pretty extensively on my blog um, this past week. Um, one person died after he summited. Uh, he was coming back down near the, um, the, um, the south summit uh, where he passed away. Uh, uh, I'm told that uh, he was with Seven Summits Treks and that they sent up additional Sherpas to try to revive him, um, but to no avail. They gave him, um, apparently they said food and extra oxygen, but um, um, he died. The quoted, uh, the reason of death was listed or uh, quoted as being exhaustion. A second person also died. He apparently reached the Hillary step. Um, he also was suffering from exhaustion and also snow blindness, which uh, is kind of odd because typically 
eventually you begin to develop snow blindness that happens gradually over time and you turn around uh, because you simply can't see. It's like having needles in your poked into your eyes, I'm told. I once cared for a teammate who had snow blindness and uh, it was incredibly painful. You actually put drops in their eyes to treat it, but the big thing is that you get them down and you close the eyes and cover them so that uh, the sun doesn't uh, hit the eyeball anymore, the eye socket. But uh, he was escorted back down to Camp 4 to the South Coal where he also died. Um, and then again, one of the listed reasons was exhaustion. So, you know, with this, we can expect every year on Everest uh, anywhere from five to 10 deaths on a, on a uh, quote unquote regular normal year. And um, so this year, sadly, we're probably on track for that. Hopefully, it's going to be on the low end. Hopefully, these will be the only two casualties on the, on the entire season. Uh, but statistically, historically, especially in the last five years, uh, that's really not been the case. But uh, so I went back and started to look at all the deaths and kind of looked at, um, you know, what caused the deaths. And uh, so I've got it on my blog. And I'd like to remind everybody that watches this on YouTube or hears it on, on a, a podcast that uh, a lot of statistics and tables and pictures are on my blog at alanarnett.com. Uh, easy navigation to get there. So all this data is uh, duplicated there. Uh, but I add a lot more here in this commentary. So, um, you know, going back, there has been 304 deaths since Everest has been attempted back in the 1920s. Uh, of those 304, more of the members or the clients, the pay paying customers have died than the support staff. That's the Sherpas and uh, you know professional guides, people like that. Now I use the Himalayan database, which you can find online for free. Um, it's rather uh, cryptic to uh, navigate at times, but if you can wade through it, there's some great data there all about summits and summit rates and how many days people take to summit and national a lot of things. So I really focused on the people who had died. And um, of the uh, 304, 185 members have died and 119 uh, support people or Sherpas primarily have died. Of that total, I bet 304, 77 died from avalanches, 71 from falls, and 36 from AMS, acute mountain sickness. Uh, and that's kind of a catch-all phrase that uh, includes some other forms of, uh, of uh, mountain illness or altitude illness, including pulmonary edema and cerebral edema. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Um, you know, so digging deeper into that, of the uh, 185 members who died, um, 30, um, 30 of those 54, excuse me, 54 died from what was classified as a fall. And of that, 30 died, they fell while they were descending. And so that's uh, that's the number one there on the on the hired side, on the Sherpa side, uh, 56 died from avalanches. And in that case, uh, an example would be in 2014 when that hanging serac fell off the west shoulder of Everest, uh, that would be classified um, as, a, as an avalanche. Uh, so, you know, 77 from avalanches in total, that's the number one cause of death. But if you look at these two individuals who just died this past week, they died from exhaustion, which I find is a, an interesting term. So I asked uh, one of the leading Nepali guides, uh, what, did he, what did he take by the word uh, exhaustion? And uh, this was uh, Dawa David uh, uh, Sherpa of Asian Trekking. And he said, well, exhaustion simply means they should have turned back before they died. Well, I agree totally. 
Because if you reach the point of exhaustion and you don't have enough energy to keep going and certainly not enough energy to get back down. And I speak from personal experience. In two, uh, when I was on Everest in 2002, 2003, and 2008, I reached a point just below the balcony around 27,500, 600 feet. And I got to that point, uh, it was about two o'clock in the morning. I had been climbing for about six hours, way, way, way too slow. And, um, you know, I stopped in cold in my feet. I stopped and looked around, it's pitch black, weather was good, but I had no energy. I felt empty. I mean, I just felt like I could not take another step higher or lower. And actually all I wanted to do was just to sit down in the snow. But uh, I was with a Sherpa um, all three times and uh, the Sherpa never tried to convince me to go higher or to go lower. They simply stood patiently while I debated what I should do. And at the end of the day, I decided that I could not, I could go higher, but I didn't know I, if I could go lower. So in other words, yeah, I might have been able to push it and reach maybe the balcony, go up the southeast ridge and hit the south summit. Maybe, maybe, totally unlikely I could summit. But I knew if I had taken one more step, the odds of me not being able to get back down to the balcony were extremely high. So in all three cases, I made the decision to turn myself around. By the way, I was on supplemental oxygen all three times. Uh, you know, but um, I made that decision uh, and I was thinking clearly enough to be able to make that decision. And so that comes into one of the areas uh, about uh, getting sick at altitude. There's a phenomenon called high, high altitude cerebral edema or HACE. And that's where the brain swells due to uh, the lack of oxygen and the exertion. And so what happens is when your brain swells, uh, you get confused and your thinking is not clear. Uh, and you make bad decisions, typically. Another phenomenon, another um, edema is called high altitude pulmonary edema. And this is where uh, basically you develop fluid in your lungs and it inhibits your ability to breathe. And obviously that's not good. Uh, in that case, you're gasping for breath. You can hear gurgling coming from the person. I actually developed HAPE on K2. And luckily it was a mild case. Uh, but uh, in both of the cases of HAPE and haste, the only solution, the only remedy is to turn around and go down as as quickly as you possible can. There are drugs that you can take that'll, that'll begin to uh, address the symptoms, but if you take the drugs and keep climbing, you're almost guaranteed to die. Another uh, phenomenon that happens at altitude, which um, often results in people dying, and I think this plays a strong case in the exhaustion aspect, is where they get something called summit fever. You know, those people that are familiar with climbing have heard this term a lot, but basically it's where the climber loses the ability to think rationally. All they can think about is they want to summit at all costs and they uh, make a poor decision. Now that could be combined with other forms of altitude mountains, acute mountain sickness, or you know, one of the edemas, but in general uh, is where you're, you know, basically your heart is stronger than your mind. And you really want to summit at all costs and you just throw caution to the wind. Uh, you ignore the advice of others and you just keep on going. And sadly, you, often you push yourself beyond your limit and you end up passing away on the mountain. So, you know, when I went back and also thought about and read some reports going back from the late 1990s about uh, why people died, and it didn't matter whether they were, you know, independent, they were on a national team, they were on a low-end commercial team, or they were on a top-level VIP trip, you know, they spent $130,000. There were some, really some commonalities here. And the first is that the climber ignored advice from more experienced climbers and Sherpas. They ignored the advice. The second is that they got in trouble, but their teammates left them. 
And they only came back and they found that person in worse shape than when they left them. Uh, that is more common than you'd think, sadly, or may know. Uh, the third is that, um, you know, a little bit of arrogance here, that they felt superior to the other climbers on the mountain. They felt stronger. You know, it was the this can't happen to me syndrome. And then the fourth uh, commonality was they were trying to save money. You know, maybe they went without using supplemental oxygen. Uh, it, this is going way back, but maybe they tried to climb not using any Sherpa support or they tried to do, you know, quote unquote, unsupported, um, which these days is virtually impossible to do. Because if you use the ropes, you cross a ladder, uh, by definition, you use support. Uh, the only person that really has done a solo unsupported climb of Mount Everest was Reinhold Messner on the north side back in the 80s. So, you know, kind of wrapping up here, thinking about um, the takeaways from this, here are the lessons that I gleaned from um, people dying on Mount Everest. Number one, never climb alone. Simply don't ever climb alone. Uh, you know, even if you're um, in your local crag, you know, grab a buddy, grab a partner to go with you. Second is, and this is really so obvious, have the proper experience before you get on a mountain, especially something like Everest. The third is to be physically prepared. I mean, do not underestimate how the physicality of climbing a mountain like Everest. The fourth is to be mentally and emotionally prepared to turn around. You know, standing on top of a big rock is, is not worth your life. You know, and that's where the summit fever comes back into play. So be mentally and emotionally prepared to give up that summit if you get in trouble. Another out learning from this is know how your body performs at altitude before you go to a mountain like Everest. And the only way to do that is by climbing ever higher mountains over a period of time. You know, start off with a 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 meter mountain. And I always recommend to people, go get an 8,000 meter um, summit or at least an attempt under your harness before you try Everest. Go to Gasherbron 2, Choi Oyu, Manaslu. Try one of those mountains first. They're almost half the price of an Everest climb, and it's a great chance to see how your body performs at altitude. Uh, another one is that climb with a team that won't abandon you. Another, you know, kind of one that's so obvious, but, uh, you know, know who you're climbing with. Choose your guide carefully. Choose your team carefully. Talk to the person that you're going to be on the mountain with on that summit night. Make sure they understand what your goals and your priorities are, uh, and make sure that if you do get in trouble, they will not abandon you. That actually happens. And um, another one, and this is controversial, I know, but in my opinion on Everest, always use supplemental oxygen. You know, like I said earlier, um, what was the number of the people who died that um, 83 per, um, that 56% uh, of the people, of 304 people who died, 170 of the 304 died without using, without using supplemental oxygen. In other words, 56% of the deaths were came from people not using supplemental oxygen. You know, I know it's controversial, and I know there are people will say, Alan, it's all about style and you're cheating. You know, it should just be you against a mountain. And I respect that 100%. And I think that if a person has the, uh, the, the genetics to be able to climb without supplemental oxygen, someone like an Ed Viesters or a Reinhold Messner, good on them. I mean, just, I mean, so happy for them, but they represent only 3% of the people who have summited Mount Everest without using supplemental oxygen and 56, 56% of the deaths came from people not using supplemental oxygen. And so finally, and this is a little tongue twister, but you don't know what you don't know or think you know until you're there. I'll say it again for those listening. You don't know what you don't know or think you know until you're there. You know, you think that you are prepared. 
And I made this mistake of my first attempt on Everest in 2002. I thought I knew. I totally underestimated the mountain. I totally thought that I was physically, mentally, and emotionally prepared to go. And I got there and it kicked my butt. <laughs> you know, I gave it my best and I'm very happy, very proud of myself that I chose to turn around. I chose life over standing on top of the summit and perhaps losing my life. But you don't know until you're there. Uh, being at altitude, I always tell people this, that altitude is exponential. You know, you go from 14 to 16,000 feet, that's one thing. 16 to 20 is a totally different case. Going from 20 to 25, <laughs> a whole different book. And then going from 25 to almost 29, unless you've been there, you really don't understand it. And But there's a first time to be at that altitude. And that's the reason that going at a, getting close to that uh, 8850, 8848 number in meters is critically important by going to a 8,000 meter mountain prior to trying Everest. You know, it's sad when people die on the mountain. Uh, my heart goes out to the families, the friends, the teammates, the Sherpas that watch people, you know, suffer and, and die and the Sherpas who try valiantly to uh, save their life. And many, many, many lives are saved on Everest. Uh, it's totally underreported because the guides don't want to talk about one of their clients getting in trouble. Nepal certainly doesn't want to talk about anything negative on the mountain. So, but I can guarantee you that there are more rescues. And in fact, this year, there have been a tremendous number already uh, of people that almost died. But if it hadn't been for the Sherpas, and 99% of the time, it's the Sherpas who save uh, the foreigners' lives on these big mountains. And uh, so thank you to the Sherpa community for all you do for all the people like myself. Okay, that's it uh, for this update. Uh, we got the weekend coming up. I'll do the weekend update. Uh, again, please visit the blog if you want to see uh, the numbers and the stats uh, in a table form. And um, hopefully we're going to start to see some summits coming up next week. All right, climb on. This is Alan. And remember, memories are everything.